I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. What do you want to do? I'll go first, I guess. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The rules are so clear. (laughs) Okay, great. I just get to listen? I'm down. This is the one with age-appropriate marriages. Great. Kind of. Okay. Are they, though? That's, I think, what... (laughs) Through a certain lens? Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I've been recording. Okay, oh, great. great. So we should talk about how we're going. We should make like a graph of age inappropriate marriages. Yeah, I think that's definitely going to be a theme here on Missing History. Yes, and how many years and who has the biggest? Who has the biggest gap? Yeah, it's not something to aspire for, but I think seeing how many would be um, interesting. Yeah, we can put it up there with how many mothers died before they turned ten. Yeah, who doesn't have a mom? Yeah, by thirteen. Yeah, <laughs> those seem to be or our- a dad. Disney style. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, got, you can't have a full set. I'm really surprised we don't have more Disney movie characters here. Maybe we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll run out of real women, so we'll go fictional. I oh, hope not. Me neither. We're not going to get there. No. Great. Okay. Um, but I think today's woman is probably the closest we're going to get to a Disney princess, at least for a while, in that she's an actual princess. Very briefly. Twice. And then she becomes queen. Twice. Whoa. And I know we had kind of talked about, like, not necessarily focusing on queens, but we she, talked about it, but but I think I'm going to make the pitch here that uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Oh my God, are you doing her? I'm doing Eleanor of Aquitaine. I love her. Sorry. She's pretty great. Sorry, I don't know a lot about her except that if you haven't seen Lion in Winter, go out and do yourself a favor and see Catherine Hepburn. Just throw it all out on the court. I mean, she is exquisite in this movie. It's from like 1968. Mm-hmm. I want to say. She's playing opposite Peter O'Toole, who's, like, significantly younger than her. And she is, like, the lone woman amidst all these... Yep. All her sons are fighting. Anyway. Yep. And that movie is surprising. Well, I can't speak about the historical accuracy, but about what the sort of historical image of Eleanor Raquitaine. The movie's pretty accurate. Yes. It's also a play. Did not know that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Cool. It's... Now I've got some stuff to go watch. Please go watch it. It's so good. I want to talk about it. (laughs) Keep going. Um, But the reason I'm really excited about her, speaking of her age and appropriate marriages, is she's the first one I think we've talked about who has not one but two marriages, Mm -hmm. both of which are kind of age appropriate. Yeah. So let's dive in. Okay. Cool. So Eleanor is most likely born in 1122. Little unclear, as Mm -hmm. with a lot of these medieval births. But based on some documents about when she gets christened, when these other things are happening with the family, pretty sure 1122. Okay. Um, she is the daughter of Duke William the Tenth of Aquitaine. Mm-hmm. Um, which is French which is, area? Which is in France. In it France. is the largest sort of subunit of France at the time. Mm-hmm. It's in southwestern France. And at its height... It's about a third the size of the modern nation of France. Whoa. So it's big. A third of France. It's a third of France. It's not to be messed with. It's a pretty big deal. And so the Duke, there's a French king at this point? Yes. Okay. Um, And the relationship between the French king and these various dukes is 
kind of give and take. Like, mm. he's technically in charge, mm-hmm. but he can't really tell them to do things they don't want to do. Vague question. Yeah. So 1066 is like the William the Conqueror yes. year. And he's technically Norman. Yes. They call it the Norman invasion, but yes. it's like a French invasion, correct? Yeah. He's So he's from Normandy, which is a duchy in northern France. Yes. Yeah. And so he kind of is the first... Sort is of he a, the first idea that, like, France and England are going to fight forever yes. about who's in charge of both? Exactly. That's okay. exactly where it comes from because he's a French yes. nobleman. He has connections in France, which yes. now the English monarchy can claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and Eleanor is actually going to play a fairly big role in that right. because she's got it's all sort these of like French connections, too. sort of like 1066 through... Oof. Basically the, always. like, 15, 1600s. Yeah. yeah. Through all... They just can't figure out... They can't get their shit together. They constantly figure out who gets what. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is a pretty big chapter in that. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, keeping with our theme, her mom dies when she's eight, as does her brother. So we're just growing up with the dad. But that also means that she is the Duke's oldest child. She's the only one. She's the only one. So she will be the one to inherit the duchy when he dies. Now, this is possible because French inheritance customs aren't as sexist as English ones at this point. Mm -hmm. So it's actually not super uncommon for a woman to be the direct inheritor of a particular duchy or something like that. Now you're calling it a duchy. Yes. And not a dukedom. Yes. Did I just make that word up? I'm unclear. Or is that Shakespeare? It's possible that Shakespeare... Duchy is what I saw when I was doing my research. Pardon me. Dukedom. Isn't that correct? With the liquid Liquid U. Dukedom. If you can't tell, we spent a lot of time on Shakespeare plays this summer. He's the most produced playwright uh, in the world. And so, okay, Duchy is the right one? I think so. Okay, Duchy. That's not funny at all. (laughs) Um, And because she's in line to succeed him, she gets an incredibly good education for the time. So in addition to the sort of traditional things that a noble woman would get, Mm. sewing, needlepoint, singing, fine conversation, all of that, Mm. she also learns math. She can read and write Latin, which is very uncommon, not just for women, but for nobility generally at this point. Um, And she also studies literature and history. And everyone who knows her mentions how incredibly intelligent and driven she is as a young person. And you wonder if it's the fact that she's been exposed to education that she's remarked upon as being intellectual. As if maybe given opportunities, given opportunities, people are people. Oh, hey, you like books. Maybe because you're given books, so you get to read them. Who'd have thought? What a logical... <laughs> what a concept. concept. Um, mm. And that's going to prove to be a really good thing for her, because as we're about to find out, she's going to go really quickly from being the heir to a duchy to much, much bigger things. Um, so at 11.36... Uh, when for her... the record, I'm picturing a young Kate Hepburn in my mind, because it's just... It works. Yeah. In, like, full regalia. I think that's probably the best way to do this. Yeah. High cheekbones, just a doesn't-give-a-crap attitude. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Okay. Keep going. Um, so in 1136, when her father passes away, she becomes the Duchess of Aquitaine. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, she is officially the most powerful woman in Europe. Because she has sort of the total control over this duchy and isn't tied down to any man. But very quickly, she's going to get tied down to a man. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of her father's will, uh, she is under the guardianship of Louis VI, who's the king of France. Mm. The reason her dad did this is because it's apparently a big thing at the time to kidnap eligible heiresses, marry them against their will, and then take all of their property. What a charming... Charming time. Romance. Um, so is Louis uh, single Louis for our gal not Eleanor? single, but Louis' son is single. Oh, um, God. And so 
this is the first of the age-appropriate marriages. Um, so Eleanor is 15 at the time. Louis the Seventh, who is Louis the Sixth's son, is 17. So only two years different. They're both teenagers, which for us, I think, is the closest that's, we've come to, like, accurate. unappropriate marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so pretty much immediately after she succeeds to the duchy, she marries Louis the Seventh, mm. And pretty much immediately after that, Louis the Sixth dies. Oh man. So okay. in a I think it's in about maybe a couple of months, she goes from being Duchess of Aquitaine to Princess of France to Queen of France. And all of sixteen. Yes. Um but when she's doing that, she's also doing some pretty savvy political dealing because she when so when she marries Louis, the deal is their children, specifically their son will inherit the titles both to the French kingdom and to the um, Duchy of Aquitaine. Mm. But if they don't have a son, or if the marriage doesn't work out, the duchy still technically belongs to Eleanor. Mm. So if things don't go well, or for some reason they don't have a son, it's not that those lands are permanently joined, it's just they happen to be under the same person at this moment. But if things go wrong, they go back to being her property. So basically she's giving herself like a little bit of a safety net. If things don't work out, she can go back to being the Duchess of Aquitaine. Mm-hmm. And that's going to prove to be really important in a little bit. So, pretty much immediately after they get married, she's queen. Great. Um, and a lot of the contemporary chroniclers at the time spend a lot of time talking about how she shows up in Paris and she's this high-spirited woman. They comment on her immodest behavior. And part of this, we think, is because she's from southern France, which has a very different culture than northern France basically a lot less stuck up down in the south. And I think it's also because she's a pretty strong-willed woman and they don't really know what to do with that. Definitely has opinions. Speaks them. The one thing we're pretty Also, she's queen. She sets the culture, so get on board. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) ugh. Yeah, and we should be clear, most of these chroniclers, all of these chroniclers, men. Yeah, I'm shocked. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And she definitely has strong opinions because the one thing they all remark on is that she is basically telling the king what to do. Yeah. No one is surprised. Um, And so one of the first things she does to sort of prove her influence um, is the king has gotten into a bit of a spat with the pope over appointing an archbishop, like you do in 12th century Europe. Um, And so in 1141, Louis starts fighting with some of his other vassals who are supporting the pope over him. Nice little two-year war. Again, very common for the time. How else do you pass the time? There's not a lot to do. Not a lot to do. Um, But Eleanor goes to talk to a leading figure in the French church, Bernard of Clairvaux, um, who's a sort of big monastic figure, Mm. doing a lot of reform at the time, but also in with the Pope. And she's basically like, hey, can you fix this for us? Mm. And he says some super sexist stuff that I'm not going to repeat. Oh, come on, Michael. Um, Because I... Can't you see how much I want to hear about (laughs) it? But suffice it to say, she convinces him to convince the Pope... To calm everything down and so manages to get sort of everyone out of this problem fixes it for louis who's off kind of futzing around but as part of this deal to like set everything right the pope's like okay happily may like let you get your archbishop mm. but i need you to go on a crusade for me this of course being the height of european yeah. crusading impulses yeah so in 1147 louis and a huge French army sets off for what becomes known as the Second Crusade. 
Um, Eleanor joins him, not just as his wife. Don't often think of the French in terms of crusades, but yeah. I guess everybody had a little go. In. Pretty much most of the yeah, European powers the trend. are going to be involved some way or another. Gross. Um, yeah. And it's going to go really, really well for them. Fun fact, my elementary school uh, mascot, we were crusaders. Oh, boy. Problematic. A little bit. Yeah, it was a little, like, Catholic night. school? Yeah, 100%. Oh, no yeah. joy. Yeah. I wonder if they've changed it since. Probably, Probably not. Probably not. Anywho. Anywho. <laughs> so Eleanor joins the crusade, not just as the queen, but also as the commander of the forces from Aquitaine. So she's like, there is a queen, but also there is a military commander. And apparently this isn't going super well with her husband. The uh, marriage is not necessarily in a great place before they leave for the crusade. Mm. Then they get to Jerusalem. Things aren't going well at all. Mm. She doesn't necessarily listen to him as much as he'd like. He's really bad at his job, so she doesn't really want to listen to him. Mm. Um, and the Second Crusade turns into an unmitigated disaster. And she's in Jerusalem at this time. Yeah, they're, oh, so they're both they're with... they're both in the Middle East. Um, Dang. And after about two years, things go horribly. Yeah, they don't achieve any of their goals, and they head back. On their way back to France, they stop off with the Pope. And they're basically like, this isn't working. Can you annul our marriage? Whoa. Um, yeah, pretty serious stuff at this time. Yeah. Do um, they have any children? They had two daughters. Whoa. But no sons. And that Still. actually proves to be kind of the issue, is Louis really wants a son. Um, and it's not uncommon at this time for nobles to basically try for a son for a couple of years, and then if it doesn't work out, go for an annulment, try to find an excuse to get off the hook, and then remarry in the attempt to get sons. Um, but of course, when you're the king and queen of Isn't France, it the man's yes. participation in yes. the process that uh, creates the gender of the baby. Yes, I mean, it it's is. not like they intend it, but it's but they are the ones not responsible the for it. Yeah, yeah. I and think there is a little bit but having to do with the egg, but, but it's mostly the man because he's yeah. the one with the XY chromosomes. So, so it's a hundred percent his fault. But I of sort course of they appreciate don't know that this. irony. Mm-hmm. Just like keep looking, <laughs> if you're shooting X's, you. Stuck with ladies. Yeah. Maybe change the law. <laughs> no, no, no. We no. can't do that. We can't do that. That's absurd. I know. Which I bet as coming from Eleanor, like she was just fine inheriting everything and mm-hmm. saw it as no problem and had these two girls and was like, yep. cool. Yeah. They don't count. Great. Thank yeah. you so much. Gotta love it. Right? Gross. Um, other gross things. So they're <laughs> chilling with the Pope in Italy, trying to sort this thing out. Mm. And the Pope isn't really interested in giving them an annulment. Mm. So instead, in, like, a really weird medieval thing, the Pope, like, makes them up a wedding bed, like, literally, like, lays out these, like, special sheets on a bed and then basically kind of forces them to, in effect, reconsummate their marriage in an attempt to fix the problem. Because there's nothing but having, like, a creepy old guy make you go have sex to fix your marriage problems, right? Just, like, tried and true method right there. The original couple therapist. Yep. Just oh my Pope. God. Uh, That's who you want, it? right? The Pope. Yep. Pope uh, Eugene the Third. He's uh, known for <laughs> getting things fixed. Mm. Um, Let me guess. It worked out great. So great. Mm. Eleanor has her second daughter. Still wants to annul the marriage. She wants to as well. At this yes. Point. They both are like, this isn't She's working like, for us. And right, and she's can go back to being the Duchess of Aquitaine. And I was going to say he doesn't get gig. he doesn't get Aquitaine nope. just because he married her. No, nope, because remember she did that sneaky right. thing where she was like, right. "This goes to our kids, but if we don't work out, it goes back to me." So she's pretty set up if this doesn't work. Um, and so eventually they convince four archbishops in France to get together and annul their marriage. Mm. Um, 
Eleanor goes back to being the Duchess of Aquitaine. And the excuse they come up with, which is just this like quintessential European problem at the time, is called consanguinity, which mm. basically means you're too closely related for your marriage to technically be okay. And the reason this is kind of the go-to excuse to get a marriage annulled is every noble in Europe at this point is pretty much related to everyone else. Ugh. So it's kind of impossible not to be marrying your like third cousin once removed or something like that, which is, you know, creepy. Mm-hmm. But everyone was kind of like, we're okay with this, but it's also a great out if it doesn't work out. Yeah. Because there's so many degrees of like being related that you can basically yeah. use that card to get out of anything you don't want to do. Mm. Um but her, both of her daughters are confirmed as legitimate. Dad, of course, gets custody because that's how this works for some reason. Um, and she goes back to Aquitaine. Mm. On the way back to Aquitaine, she gets to escape not one but two kidnapping attempts because two separate nobles are like, oh, you're single now? Great. We're going to kidnap you, force you to marry me so I can get all your land. Ew. Yeah. So it really is a thing. Like it's a Game of pretty Thrones, huge man. problem. Yeah. Legit. Not great. But Eleanor has got a solution to this. She gets home. First thing she does is writes a letter to Henry, Duke of Normandy, grandson of the King of England. Mm. And is like, hey, you're going to come marry me. It's basically the medieval version of a booty call. <laughs> and he's like, okay, cool. I'll do that. Yeah. Um, and this is our second age-appropriate marriage in that he is 11 years her junior. Mm. So older woman. So Lion in Winter was somewhat accurate. Yeah. No, it totally nice. is. Um. And so they get married in 1152, and the quote um, from the Chronicle about it is they were married in conditions not befitting their circumstances. So it's basically like they eloped. It's the medieval version of eloping. Mm. Um, And the timing on this pretty much can't be any better. They get married, and two months after their wedding, Mm -hmm. Henry's grandfather dies, and Mm -hmm. Henry becomes Henry II, King of England. Mm -hmm. And so now Eleanor is here. She is just about 30 years old. She has already been queen of France, mm-hmm. and now she's queen of England. Mm-hmm. So, like, girl's got pretty good timing. Killing it. Yeah. Um, and for the next two decades, she's going to take a really active role in running England. Um, since England controls territory in France and in England, mm-hmm. she's spending a lot of time in France, doing a lot of stuff with the French territories, um, making sure Aquitaine stays under French control, doing stuff in Normandy. Basically, any problems that Henry's having in France, she's the point person for fixing it. Um And she's also turning Aquitaine into this great center of literature and culture. Mm. So she's a sponsor of musicians, of troubadours, of poets, um, and is in a lot of ways responsible for this medieval genre of courtly love literature that we get to, which is this kind of weird, like, semi-erotic, but also semi-chaste. Platonic, but not. Platonic, but not, of, like, these men pining after these women that they're never going to get. Um, doing all of these big romantic gestures for them, but nothing ever happens. Mm. And that nothing ever happens part a lot is quite of like scarf to it. giving. Yes, and like wearing the scarf when you go jousting or something like that. And if you've done like any sort of medieval literature class, you've mm. probably read something that was written in her court around this time. She's sponsoring pretty much anyone who's writing this stuff or singing songs about it mm-hmm. comes to her court in Aquitaine. Um, and this is the point where I have to say like, so I'm not a huge English monarchy person. I don't, like, know all the kings and queens. I'm not, like, super interested in, like, yeah. who's related to who and who's marrying who. Yeah. So, But I went on Wikipedia because mm. I was like, she had a lot of kids. Yeah, she did. We're going to get through it real quick. I bet I know a couple. Okay. Let's see how well we do here. Um, so, and also we should be clear, um, lots of sons with Henry. Uh-huh. So definitely not uh-huh. a her problem. Yeah. Yep. 
But um, it shouldn't matter anyway. No. Whatever. Yeah. Um, so first child, William, born 1153, dies 1156, so only three. Aww. That's all we've got about him. Um, Henry, born 1155. Uh, he's crowned king during his father's lifetime, but has no meaningful powers. Gets a little pissed about this, tries to have a revolt against dad, mm-hmm. loses, dies in 1183. Mm-hmm. Richard, also known as Richard the Lionheart. Pretty big deal. He's king from 1189 to 1199. Mm-hmm. Joffrey, born 1158. Is his name Joffrey? His name is Joffrey. It's not Jeffrey. I think I'm going with Joffrey, but also I have no idea. I literally looked this up on Wikipedia. Well, if it's so. Jeffrey, it's I think it's Lion and Winner, it's Jeffrey. Okay. Not that that means anything, it's a movie. But if it's Joffrey, then it's Game of Thrones, and I appreciate it. Keep cool. going. Either way, uh, he turns out to be the Duke of Brittany mm-hmm. and dies in 1186. John, born in 1166. As in Prince John. So you have Richard yes. and John of Robin Hood fame. Exactly. Coming out of the same mm-hmm. lady. Same mom. Nice. Um, he is, of course, King of England from 1199 to 1216. Mm. Um, and then she has three daughters. Matilda, born in 1156, marries the Duke of Saxony, dies mm. in 1189. Eleanor, just straight up named after her. 1162, mm-hmm. marries the King of Castile, dies 1214. And then Joan, born 1164, marries the King of Sicily, dies 1199. So how many is that? That is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight kids. After 30. Go yep. girl. Um, seven of whom live to adulthood, although she really ends up good. outliving all but two of them. Yeah. Um, but kind of at her height, she is effectively often called the grandmother of Europe because she has all of these yeah. kids all over the place like running it. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. that. Um, so back to the story. So her husband, not necessarily the greatest guy. No, he's quite the pig. Yep. Noted philanderer. And so unsurprisingly, wedding isn't the like marriage isn't on the best terms. Mm-hmm. Right. So in 1168, been married almost two decades they separate. Mm-hmm. And, and this like, is where my film comes in. Keep literally going. separate. So she moves back to Aquitaine mm-hmm. and basically runs the French territories for, for the next five years. And from what I can gather, like, it's not super acrimonious. Like, Henry, like, escorts her back, is, like, doing some stuff. Like, it's not like he's super pissed at her. She's just like, I don't want to deal with this anymore because mm-hmm. you're the worst. And so she leaves, goes off, does her own thing. At some point, some of her sons are like, Dad's not doing such a great job. Let's revolt against him and overthrow him and make one of us king. And so in 1173, three of her sons, Henry, Richard, Geoffrey Joffrey, mm-hmm. lead a revolt against Dad. Mm-hmm. Um, some people suspect that Eleanor was kind of egging them on, mm-hmm. a little unhappy with his philandering ways, wanting to get back at him. Yep. Um, either way, she provides a lot of troops and support for them as they attempt to take him down. Doesn't go super well, unfortunately. I'm obviously rooting for her, but Henry wins, captures her, imprisons her. Mm-hmm. Next 16 years, she's basically bouncing around castles in England, locked up. Mm-hmm. Not like prison style locked up, like servants, her, nice though, rooms, but like no freedom of movement, right. just like confined, has no power. Right. Um, and it stays like this until Henry dies in 1189 and Richard becomes king. First thing he does is releases her. And then she goes on to play a really active role in his administration. Mm-hmm. So she runs his coronation. Yeah. Um, she runs the country while he's off on the third crusade. But he, yeah, he just he just off to crusade all the time. Pretty much. And like, so he don't want to stick. When he's gone, which I bet she loved because she's like, "Bye, I'll be king. Don't worry about it." And that's pretty much what she does. Like she's basically he also running the country. Marry, when he's gone. Right? I don't 
don't think so. Yeah, there's a whole subplot he, of like because he dies without an he sure. dies without an heir, um, and so her son John mm-hmm. is going to become king in a sec. Um, Not Jeffrey because no. he's Britain because he's yeah because he's the Duke of Brittany. Brittany, sorry. Um, and so, so John goes off on a crusade. Mm. On his way back, he gets captured by the Holy Roman Emperor John. and held for ransom. So in addition to running the country, which wow, Robin Hood's so wrong. Keep going. <laughs> Um, so Are you shocked? <laughs> so in addition to running the country, she's also negotiating to get Richard released um, and raising a huge sum of money for so his wait, ransom. wait, Richard gets a ransom? Richard gets a ransom. Oh, no, wait, Robin Hood's right. Keep going. Okay, cool. Okay, sorry. I thought you said John. No, no, no. So Richard. Richard goes on a crusade. Richard goes on a crusade, mm. gets ransomed. Yes. Costs a lot of money. That she's is accurate to the Robin Hood that. movies I have seen. Okay, good. Yeah. Check for Robin Hood. Gets a little ra- ransom going. Yeah. Um, so then Richard passes away um, and is succeeded by John. And so now Eleanor, who's pushing 80 at this point, is like, okay, I need to make sure that everything is solidified, that the family is in a good place when I die. And so she organizes a marriage between one of the princesses of Castile, so granddaughter, and one of the sons of the French king to, like, Mm -hmm. solidify those family connections, try to keep the whole, like, English-French fight from happening. It's obviously going to go super well. No. Um, So at 80, she packs off to Spain picks out the the daughter that she wants to marry off, takes her up into France. Um, 80. 80. Girl. While she's in France, um, she spends some time leading some armies. There's some conflicts going on, like you do when you're 80. Yeah, I bet um, you really want to get on a horse and mm-hmm. go traversing across Europe. Yeah. Um, and the interesting note is that, so she wins a couple of victories in France. Mm-hmm. Those are the only victories the English army has in France during John's entire reign. So John, anytime John's leading the army, doesn't go so Not well. Great. Anytime Eleanor is leading the army, I mean, wouldn't goes you, well. Wouldn't you want to fight behind like a eighty-year-old grandma who's like just done like everything, and she's yeah, yeah. That's who I'm behind. Mm-hmm. I'm with her. Yeah, I. She seems to have everything figured out at this point. Yeah. Um. And so in 1202, she retires to an abbey in Aquitaine and dies in 1204. So like 82. Wow. For, and for, like, the Middle Ages. That's, yeah. Doing great. That's hardcore. Yeah. Um, the note in the Abbey's history when she dies is that she was beautiful and just, imposing and modest, mm. humble and elegant, a queen who surpassed almost all the queens of the world. Nice. And other than being pissed that her beauty is the first thing they mention, which, like, <sighs> it's fine. Um, it's a, not is that, like not, that, it's is not, that not where all our value is, Michael? I mean. Wait. 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 So I've been getting this wrong? I'm sorry. Are we not to be judged on the outside? Wait, what? You know. Twist. It's funny you should mention that because on her Wikipedia page, there's a section called Appearance, which, you Yeah, know, there usually is for women. Yeah. Just yeah. To, to talk about, like, Also, personal people... life is always way bigger on a woman's Wikipedia page than a man's, mm. I have found. Yeah. Because, of course, everything she's doing is mm-hmm. her personal life. Did she have babies? Who did she marry? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did she win a bunch of Grammys? Whatever. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's a whole section on her appearance. Appearance, yeah. It's just like it's fine. I think there is though. There is like a fa- like I said with Boudica, like there is a fascination about people that we don't have any real mm-hmm. like especially Renaissance or I'm sorry, Middle Ages art where it's all that flat, odd. You can't really get a sense of mm-hmm. the person, and when they are these kind of towering giants, it is kind of uh, helpful to paint a picture in your mind. Yeah. So I do understand I that. That's fair. But I, I don't see it happening with men as much. No. Not even a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Queen of France, mm. Queen of England, mm. 
grandmother to most of the powers in Europe at that point. Yeah. Um, and also Duchess of Aquitaine. And like a doer. And like, like out there doing it. Making things happen. Yeah. Often making more things happen than her husband and or sons are doing. Yeah. So I really like Eleanor. I do too. Um, I first came across her in high school when we were doing like a medieval history and literature thing. And I was like, she is the best. Yeah. Why have I not heard about her before? But is one of those people who's like always sort of on my back burner of like, Mm -hmm. if I need to whip out like, here's this one really cool medieval lady. Yeah, she's the one. She's usually my go-to. I do love her. Yeah. And I love her because of that movie. (laughs) I saw it it in my Catherine Hepburn phase of like wanting to watch everything she ever did. And it's like this later in life movie pre on golden pond right and mm. she's just i think henry or peter o'toole asked her to be in it he he wanted her specifically and it's interesting because like the daughters aren't really a part of the plot at all it's definitely like the three sons uh richard jeffrey and john mm-hmm. who are trying to needle their uh who who's henry gonna pick right. is where they're coming from because he ha- it's not gonna be richard technically and Eleanor comes out of house arrest because he wants to, initially at the beginning, he wants to annul his marriage with her, mm-hmm. marry this girl Alice, and yes. then have a son with Alice, and then that'll be the king, because like, he doesn't get along with any of these three boys for different reasons. Yeah. And then the whole movie is, it's Christmas or something, so there's this preconceived, like, we're going to get the family together, and it's actually this horrible political needling of all these people that mm-hmm. are just wretched family to each other but you know interesting and that, yeah. that's actually fairly accurate because the one time it usually that eleanor would get released from house arrest mm-hmm. was christmas and mm-hmm. the family would apparently do christmas together mm-hmm. so it seems like that would go really well for them yeah it's it's so it's such a good drama and it's you know political maneuvering and yeah she gives it to henry just as much as he gives it right back to her which is just fun to watch yeah definitely yeah Awesome. I recommend it. I Especially will... since you love her. I do. And I and I love Catherine Hepburn, too. And Peter O'Toole plays Henry II quite a bit. He does it in another movie called Beckett, where it's all about Oh, yeah. That. And she, Eleanor Bagatine is in that as well, I think. Um, but very, mm. very minimally. Yeah. But that's a young Henry II. And it's uh, Richard Burton is Beckett. Cool. We had to watch that in high school in one of our religion classes. Oh, right, because of the whole conflict with Beckett, who's the archbishop, yep. and there's, like, it's all when, about the power. It's when England is still Catholic, so yeah. Beckett actually ends up being a really good bishop, and Henry doesn't really care for that, because they're buddies, mm-hmm. and from buddies from their, from their rakish youth. youth. Yes. So, but uh, Eleanor and her, and, like, a mother-in-law are the characters in Henry. If I me- my memory is not 100% on this, mm-hmm. but I think there's one scene where he's just getting, like, nagged at by the women and he's got to like of course these wenches oh let's go (laughs) find a barmaid or something i don't know that seems very limited very limited Mm -hmm. oh i love eleanor of aquitaine okay so you picked a queen from uh, france first then england i too have a french connection um, my person is, there's so many syllables here. Hold on. Amantine Lucille Aurore Dudevant. I'm going to go with some form of a French accent on that. Okay. But she's professionally known as George Sand. Okay. Um, but we'll call her Aurora. Aurora? Aurore? Aurora. 
Aurora sounds great. But she's great. known as to her family. Or George. I don't know. I'll probably switch it out. George is pretty easy for me, and I'm a lazy human. So she's born in 1804 in uh, Paris. She's brought up in the country home of her grandmother, and that's due to the fact that her mother has sort of a uh, questionable upbringing. There's uh, her mother's on the poorer side. She's maybe maybe a prostitute that Aurora's father falls in love with. His family, her father's family, this grandmother, um, are ironically descended of an illegitimate king's child and yet they cast aspersions on this poor woman and they think that she's unfit so no hypocrisy there no so grandma just takes her and she's like i'm gonna take care of this and we're gonna but yet another raise you no time with mom woman um no there's mom comes back in a little bit but there is some strain there's Mm. some definite strain between the different branches of her family um she lives in the country of France. She actually really enjoys her childhood. She she plays with children of different classes. Uh, this is post-revolution, but there's still a very distinguished hierarchy of wealth versus peasant. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but she kind of has a liberal childhood. She Her father sort of empowers a very strong character in her, and she takes that on, and she, she identifies similarities between her and her father in a great way and uh her grandma also doesn't seem to oppose her learning of you know literature and things like that it's a kind of interesting time in france because this bohemian trend is starting to get motivated and this sort of liberal free thinking life is coming up so they hire this tutor that really shapes her i think in an interesting way and he has um the new age version of learning, which is like, what do you cleave to as a child? We're going to just encourage that vein rather than showing you all the things you really like poetry. We're going to give you all the poetry. That's so progressive. Yeah. I mean, mean, has us up and down. Who doesn't, who loves math when they're 10? Some people love math when they're 10. Still something you should learn. Like you should still learn something. Anyway, it might be too far in the, we don't do grades here. You know, we get stickers and... <laughs> Proto-hippies? Yeah. It's a little crunchy, but it's fine. She she actually excels really well. She takes to reading poetry and stories and literature. She likes music. She does like some science, some natural science. I think she really takes to nature in a in a interesting way that'll come back later. Um, this teacher also encouraged her to go horseback riding and to wear boys' clothes when you do so because it's more practical. Really? And to just get out there, girl. And she's like, great, I will. And so there's this image of her just riding around the countryside in her little breeches. Anyway, uh, for more education, her grandmother also sends her to a convent in 1817. So she's like, what, 13? Um, She's super into it, but she's more into like mysticism and the sort of magical side of the church rather than the pious you know mm-hmm. straight-laced catholicism of the time uh her grandma dies in 1821 her dad passes away when she's very young i think mom is out of the picture due to this grandmother mm-hmm. so her grandma uh gives her her full inheritance so she now has extreme wealth so super rich super educated super rich super young. educated free thinking pretty pretty exciting so grandma dies there's this whole will about Grandma wants her to go with this uncle to be her guardian until she comes of age. 
or she can choose her mother. And it's a kind of like tense situation because her mom just wants to mother her. Whereas now, personality-wise, she's been raised in this wealthy kind of establishment, and that's where her character leans to. She's used to this privilege, but she ends up choosing her mom rather than this uncle. It doesn't clash with her, or it doesn't ruin her um, ability to gain this wealth. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of this moment where she realizes she and her mother might not connect in the way that they would have if they had been together earlier in her life. This sounds like some serious soap opera stuff. Right? It's pretty... Everybody's got problems. Do you know what I mean? Every family's got this stuff. Yeah. It goes back tales old as time. What is it? More money, more problems? Yeah. She's such a liberal education. She has an education. I don't think her mother ever did. So what do they have in common besides mother and child? But it does show some loyalty that yeah. she was able to be like, I don't need this uncle. I do want, I need and want my mom, which I think is sweet. Um, she finds a fella in 1822. He's, he's a, he's... Of the same class, he's pretty chill. I'm not gonna bother saying his name because he's turned into a pig. So let's calm down. But uh, per age appropriate, I don't actually know. Let's look him up really quick. Okay, because it well, would be please. so great. I know now that it's a thing. If we I could gotta actually find out. get another age appropriate 19th century marriage out of this. Not that that's what we're looking for here at Missing History, but it would be so nice to just like have once in a while. Some age-appropriate marriages. Accurate. So she was born in 1804, right? 1804. He was born in 1795. So 10 years different, but she's not a minor? No, terrible. It's 22. She's 18, I think. Okay. So Not great. Not great. Not great, but better. She's 18. That's better. Yeah, we'll take that. You know? If we're going to pick an age, I'm going to prefer 18 to like 13. Um... So she marries him. It's 1822. She's 18. He seems chill. They get along. It's all okay. Per marriage rules at this time, he gets control of the money. Of course. You know, what's hers is his. And maybe not the other way around. Uh, She has two children with him. She really loves being a mom. She enjoys her children very, very much. Um, They live in her childhood home in the French countryside. And uh, as the marriage... Goes on, he ends up turning into a bit of a drunk, bit of a philanderer. And she's like, okay, well, I'm not interested in divorce. I'm interested in our children and I'm interested on, I don't want you to get my house. You know, I don't want you to get my thing. I'm Mm -hmm. fine sharing them. I'm not interested in you having all of them. Is sort of how I take it. Oh, because if they got divorced, he He would probably probably get the kids and the house and the money and all of it. So she's like, okay, well, I'm going to go find this neighbor friend of ours and uh, we're going to be friends and have our own little relationship on the side and you're going to get over it. This is the beginning of quite the history of George Sand. Okay. So husband off doing... in the Husband stays kind of in the countryside in the house with mm-hmm. the children. But she's, she's off with the neighbor. She's off with the neighbor. She's living at the house. She kind of... She does what she wants. It's very open. It's very free very thinking. Open. It's just the beginning. Um, dissolution of this marriage really happens when she's sort of realizing the writings on the wall. So she goes into this room in her house and she sees a letter that's addressed to her. And she can tell her husband wrote it. And to be opened on the occasion of my death. And she's like, well, I kind of feel like I'm a widow now. So let's just pop this open. Oh, man. And read it. 
in it, he like curses her. He tells her everything that's terrible about her. He um, just lets her have it in written form. Super sweet, isn't he? Yeah, don't very you, don't you just thoughtful. Solid team, dutiful. Uh, so she takes the letter. She goes to her him, and uh, he would. It said she went to her husband as he was opening a bottle, and flung the document upon the table. He cowered at her glance, at her firmness, and at her cold hatred. He grumbled and argued and entreated, but all that his wife would say in answer was, uh, I want money, I'm going to Paris, and I'm taking our daughter with me. You can have the son for some reason, which I don't want to really get into, but yeah. (laughs) So she officially moves to Paris in 1931. Uh, She becomes friends with Henri de Latouche. He has a sweet... uh, newspaper and agrees to publish these articles that she's begun to write she's uh exposed to this bohemian trend happening Mm -hmm. this romanticism we are the new age we drink absinthe and get weird kind of people um she uh sort of leans into this philosophy not really knowing much about it but she kind of just ingratiates herself with all the people of Paris at this time, other philosophers, other writers. Um, and is this still like a class thing? Is this like an upper class sort of bohemian lifestyle? She, well, there's a whole thing of like patronage, right? So she's getting, she doesn't have as much money as she would have if she was still living in the country with her husband. She's getting kind of a stipend. So mm-hmm. she's definitely living a lower class existence than she's used to. But she's, um, there's a nice thing about artists in this era where they are elite, but they are also low class in a way. Do you know what I mean? So they're living just these, like artists today. Yeah. They're living this sort of counterculture lifestyle too, where there's a lot of affairs happening. There's a lot of cross pollination, if you will. There's a okay. lot of mistresses with children. There's a lot. She leans in. She uh, begins to dress as a man in public. She goes out and about Total full regalia, top hat, cane, everything. She, uh, sometimes for practical reasons, sometimes just because. She enjoys walking around with the authority and the, like, uh, privilege that comes with wearing pants outside. So is is this in any way like what we would understand as, like, transgender nowadays? Or is it I, more strictly cr- just cross-dressing? I... I can't speak to that with authority because I don't think uh, in my research, I did not investigate it in terms of like how trans was George Sand. Mm -hmm. However, I think at this time, because clothing is so Frankie's causing a stir. Do you need to go in the bedroom? She's ready for her nap. On a clock, isn't she? It's the afternoon nap time. Um, so George Sand begins dressing as a man. I think it's... Clothing is so gendered. Spaces are so gendered. Yes, 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 yes. That if you could pass, for lack of a better word, which I think she could, and she gets the, the caveat of like, I'm an artist. I'm this odd writer. I'm this... Um, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Not... 
He's like, just, she's like unique in... oddity. I'm this like fanciful oddity that's not threatening. Right. I'm not trying to like usurp anything. Yeah. I don't know. I not that that is a threatening thing, but at the same time, she's in Paris. There's sort of a trend of like avant-garde stuff happening. So it's not and as unusual the, as it might be. Of all be. the people that could do it, an artist in Bohemia couldn't like. Okay. It's a little more. Oh, what a weirdo! You know what I mean? It's less. It's less of like a social threat to the established order at as this a... time. Yeah, I'm. I'm not to say she didn't have her haters, but I think it's also like I don't think she made a big deal. I don't think it was like there goes that Aurora dressed as a man. I think she was just like I just want to get in here and have a drink, and I don't want to talk about it. And I, when I wear a dress, all of a sudden we all have opinions. But if I wear my pants and I don't talk and I just, I'm George. I can do what I want in a different way. It allowed her all this freedom that she had been doing since she was a child. Mm-hmm. Same way that it just makes more sense to wear pants on a horse. Totally. It's not that the pants are like, it's just pants for pants her. Pants are just pants. I think for her. Okay. They can be a symbol of like how you want to feel and express yourself to the outside world. And maybe that was one of, she wanted to be more neutral. Right. And what's neutral? Male. Man. Yep. Yeah. I really hope I don't offend anybody. <laughs> Please, I'm trying. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Uh, she she drinks wine. She smokes cigars. She walks around town in pants. Um, there's a picture of her in her outfit, which I will show you at the end. As both, She also has many portraits of her as a woman. So take that for what you will. I think she wanted more options. Not unreasonably. I think that's what she wanted. Um, she becomes involved with this uh, guy named Jules Sando. They become great friends and lovers. They, uh, before she left her husband, she said, four lovers are none too many for one with such lively passions as mine. So she's sort of found that's a her, high bar. She's found, her, she's found her calling with romanticism and being like led by the heart and rapturously involved with life you know so what some I mean? nice like 19th century free love bon vivant kind of mm. style so she just goes for it and jules and her become really close and end up uh writing together so she has this kind of full she wants to eat all of life is the best way i can describe it she just wants to take it all at once and she says how i wish i could impart to you this sense of the intensity and joyousness of life that i have in my veins to live, how sweet it is, and how good, in spite of annoyances, husbands, debts, relations, scandal mongers, sufferings, and irritations. To live, it is intoxicating. To love and to be loved, it is happiness. It is heaven. She's just into She's it. living it. She just loves life. That's she also loves a him. great list of all of the things that are really annoying. Yeah, that's what <laughs> she has to deal with. And she points. still sees the great beauty of life it's such a french so op- such a 19th century french thing isn't it yeah like this, she's the poster child of romanticism um she writes a novel with jules called rose et blanche is what i'm gonna say and they they write together they use the pseudonym jules sand so it's not quite his name because they both write it and mm-hmm. they just come up with this one person um in 1832, she changes her pen name to George Sand and continues to write by herself. Uh, she writes her own novel called Indiana, which I find interesting. And uh, is it, um, it's not about like Indiana, no, I'm going to go with not about Indiana. Just need to check. It's all about the 
what it means to have put a wife with a husband against her will. So once again, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Mm. Um, it's in defense of the wife who leaves her loveless marriage for a passionate affair. So something. So write something what you know. Right. Yeah. Write what you know, George. Good job. She continues to write. She writes another novel right immediately after called Valentine and Lilia in 1833. That's probably not right. It's all about these relationships uh, crossing through class, crossing through societal conventions, um, how love can bring people of the most far reaches together and how it doesn't matter where you come from. It's about, Which, I mean, if you go back to her parents... Yeah, that's it's right. how she came into this world. Do you know what I mean? She writes from the perspective of common people. She makes her heroes, peasants, and farmers, and laborers, which is sort of a new concept. And she begins to get paid a yearly, a yearly uh, income of four thousand francs. Now I tried to do the, the logic of that mm-hmm. and how much that would be. I think it's around a hundred thousand dollars. So not too shabby. Eighteen thirties francs. If anybody knows the conversion rate, I think it's about that. I could be wrong. That's like not an insubstantial not income. Not bad for a yearly income. So yeah. now she's she also has the benefit now of really not having to rely on her husband and her former fortune. She's right. she's getting her own in uh, her own talent. She, so yeah, romanticism. For anybody that doesn't know, it's an emo, it's an emphasis. It's a literature trend of the time where there's this emphasis on emotion, individualism. And glorification of the past and nature. And the Enlightenment is right before this time, right? Yes. It's, it's sort of Late like a response to the Enlightenment, It's a response right? to the Enlightenment, which is all, oh man, weren't the Greeks great? Look at all of this information we have. Education is key. All about reason, reason, reason. Reason, reason, logic, logic. And then the heart comes with romanticism. And that means, that doesn't just mean like love. It means the far reaches of, like, Mary Shelley is considered romanticism of, like, what what the mind can do and all of this sort of passion. Yeah. my fa- I think my favorite romantic painting is mm-hmm. called Wanderer Over a Sea of Fog. It's just this guy with a cane standing on a rocky outcrop yeah. overlooking this, like, kind of mountainous, fog-covered wilderness. And it is the angstiest <laughs> yeah. painting I have ever seen. Yeah, it's, the, you- it's just, like, so much feeling in it. Yeah. So much like the individual Which, and nature. Which, I mean, nature. you heard her quote. She yeah. is thoroughly romantic. Um, I also find this correlation between medieval, like, enlightenment goes back to classical. So if you look at all of, like, uh, all of our building, all of our government buildings are in a classical vein, like columns and the Greeks influence everything. And in the founding of our country, there's all these like marble busts of people. There's yeah. this, there's this likening back to Roman times. Everybody's painting is, you know, these attitudes as Greek gods. And then we get into this time and we go to the medieval. So we have to like correlate to something in the past at the mm-hmm. same distance. I don't know. That's I really find interesting. it interesting. Uh, she preaches free love without shame. Pretty radical concept for a fully Catholic country of France. Yep. But they are French, so take that for what you will. Uh, she ha- uh, There's an alleged affair with a woman named Marie Dorval, who was an actress and dancer, I believe. And she was in her... Uh, Sand was in her 20s, Dorval was in her 30s. She had seen her act all the time, and they just really bonded and became fast friends. And they were quite opposite, but very drawn to each other, and apparently quite the affair. 
a lot of gossip in Paris at this time. Yeah. Um, was that something, do you know, was that like more radical than the her dressing as a man thing? Or is it all just sort of all part of I think of it's all part and parcel. It's, uh, this is me just guessing based on what I've read. I think it's all part and parcel to the time. And France is coming out of this kind of radical, extreme end of a monarchy formation of a new republic and I think with that kind of galvanized progression she's coming out of that in her adulthood benefiting from all the people that laid the groundwork to be like get radical get out there and as we know with most revolutions women get to do more right at the start yeah and then they're repressed again (laughs) is Mm -hmm. what usually finds we'll talk about that later with my other lady but she's sort of riding the wave that we're experimenting, we're finding out, we're doing all these things we couldn't do before that I think she just kind of takes the moment and goes for it. I also find that there's gossip. It's If it's not threatening, it's that thing of like, if it's not threatening, we're right. not going to We're not going to worry so much about it. Yeah, who's she hurting? She's already left her husband. She's already dressing like a man. Of course she's having an affair with him. You know what I mean? I don't it know. just kind of fits. Yeah. Um... She still continues to go home and visit her son and her, well, probably her husband's there, but I don't think she's going to visit him. Um, But you can see she still tries to be involved with her children. Um, And yeah, she has multiple affairs with like the names of the day, a couple French uh, writers and uh, poets and philosophers. And then one of the biggest ones that's kind of captured the mind of her story as as we've been telling it is that she um, has this long affair with Frédéric Chopin, who's like this very famous pianist, if you all don't know, writes really good stuff. Um, He's very sickly, their whole romance, but they're together eight years, and doesn't end well, which is kind of sad, but he dies soon after. And she's now much older at this point. She's lived a full kind of raging life in Paris for so long. Yeah. She's a extremely prolific writer in this time. I have a list of all of her works. It's sort of insane. She just was constantly writing. Um, but after Chopin dies, she kind of gets a little over it. So she moves uh, into, she starts writing stories about country life and focusing on her children and stories for her children and grandchildren in a really sweet way. And she goes back home and lives in her uh, childhood home of, I think it's called No Haunt. And she kind of holds, for lack of a better word, court there. So many people come in and out. She Mm -hmm. has a great group of friends that seek her out. She has all of her grandchildren there. She stages these elaborate puppet shows. She writes to them, uh, writes stories for them. There's less about politics and like class in her, in her work and more about love. Um, She kind of becomes more religious in her older age again. And, Love of God, love of nature, and her ch- her children and grandchildren. So basically everyone's favorite hippie grandma. Yeah, the original. Uh, she writes an autobiography in 1854. She's only 50, but she decided to write her autobiography then. Um, she writes a book called Tales of a Grandmother, dedicated just to her grandchildren. Amazing. And she passes away in 19... Or 19, she wishes. 1876. Um... So I don't know much of his work, but one writer that wrote about her was Balzac when she passed away, and he said, she is a female bachelor. She is an artist. She is generous. She is devoted. She is chaste. Her 
which I find interesting. Her dominant characteristics are those of a man, and therefore she is not to be regarded as a woman. She is an excellent mother, adored by her children. Morally, she is like a lad of twenty, for in her heart of hearts she is more than chaste. She is a prude. It is only in externals that she comports herself as a bohemian. All her follies are titles to glory in the in the eyes of those whose souls are noble. So there is this kind of question of how much was she putting on oh, interesting. when enjoying this bohemian lifestyle because there is all this sort of fundamental stuff at her core that is very much of her time which I also find interesting because it's such a romantic principle of like I'm gonna tr- try it right. like see what this is and maybe part of that is as much as she put on clothes of a man she also put on this the sort of bohemian, bohemian radical you know Fun love, like all of these stories of her love affairs, you can tell she was trying to find the love that she was always writing about, and it never quite happened. Oh, which I found interesting. Yeah, it's like um, both really inspiring and a little sad. I know, but you could tell she had like a full and happy life, and the life she wanted. That's all of her work. Wow, Katie is showing me a PowerPoint slide in very tiny font. So that much, is so much. Full. So you got uh, novels, plays down there on the right. There's just so much. And it goes from 1831 right up to 1872. So she's just never not writing. And to write that many novels, I mean, quite a feat. Quite a feat. Oh, wait. And then this is her. This is a portrait of her in her drag, if you will. With a really dope top hat. Yeah, she kind of looks like Oscar Wilde, doesn't she? Yeah, no, that's exactly what she looks like. And then that's her as her older self. Okay, with a nice updo, right, looking looks very like, like dignified, Victorian gal, super nineteenth century, but yeah, super bohemian at the top. Yeah, I love it. That's really really um, cool. So then the last thing I want to talk about is like, why would such a bohemian need a pen name? And there's this history of why do women need pen names? Mm. Because if why anybody has a pen, pen, pen name, names? it's usually a woman. I'm not gonna say always, but there's a trend. Uh, it's very common at the time. Even Jane Austen did not publish under her own name. She was published as a lady. Just, Just a, lady. a lady. Yeah. So you knew it was a female, but you didn't know who. Part of that is like, uh, you know, women getting into the public sphere and working in general is is difficult for people to handle for some reason. Yeah. Um. So you kind of protect your family. Not only yourself, but your family, if you don't use your name. Mm-hmm. Especially if they hate what you have to say. Which is probably likely if it comes out of a woman, someone's going to hate what you say. Yeah. So Jane Austen didn't, uh, the Brontes did not. They were all known as Caldwells, I think. E. Caldwell, A. Caldwells. Yeah. They were never known as the Brontes in their lifetime. And uh, George Eliot, who wrote Middlemarch, was a woman. Louisa May Alcott published Little Women as as Louisa May Alcott, but her other works were under a man's name. So it also... Allowed for more people to read the work without the biased opinion that women's stories are written by women or stories written by women are for women, I should say. Stories written by men are for everyone. Right. Stories written by women are for women. Like, I don't want to read about romances. Right. Okay. It's the sort of like the chick flick today. Yeah. That's a movie for women. Yeah. Yeah. What could you, what could you get out of Jane Austen? Nothing. I could get nothing out of not, Jane Austen. Not even a little bit. No, yeah. nothing cool. at all. It's also easier to get published. Unsurprising. I said it's easier to avoid haters. Accurate. Yeah, because the second a woman is writing it, there's a the at the time there's the morality question of how dare you? Shouldn't you be at home with your children? Right. 
why would you need a career? Um, <laughs> yeah. Why would you need to live a now, life? Now, this tradition, would you say it's we're done with it? I don't necessarily think so. We're super not. Yeah. Now, instead of full-on male names, what we find in the 20th century is initials. Yes. So you don't have a specifically gendered name on a story. Some of which are Nora Roberts publishes books under a male's name called J.D. Robb. Uh, The writer of Mary Poppins is known as P.L. Travers. P.L. Travers, that's Pamela Linden Travers. I did not know that. most famously of all... Joanne Rowling was asked to go by JK because Joanne might not sell as many books as a JK. She's now the richest woman in the world, I believe. That's not changed since the last I heard. That is so So. aggravating. And she now goes by Robert Galbraith when she writes her thrillers. Post Harry Potter, she wrote some thriller books, Mm -hmm. which I read for my book club. And it was a whole thing like, who's Robert Galbraith? Oh my God, it's JK Rowling. And she... With wow. all the success, success she had, that was partially to just like limit expectations more right. than anything. Separate from the but she still thing. had to choose a man's name because her. I mean, I don't understand. I I don't want to assume why, but she chooses a man's name. The protagonist in that book is a man. There mm-hmm. is a correlation that women don't know how to write men. Oh, how could on they? some level? And a man doesn't want to read what a woman writes. Man, a man. I don't know. I mean, it's all from my personal perspective. And again, generalizing. Yeah. But some of the best male characters I've ever read, written by women. Oh, what are they? Um, I can't. You see, just right there. Sorry. Just, but Too soon. but pretty much any any time I'm like, oh, this is a really well written. Yeah, male character. Turn to the front, and it's like, oh, female author. Yeah. And I think there's definitely something to like men. There's no need for them to like pay attention to other people because mm-hmm. their success and like. Safety doesn't depend on like being aware of their surroundings in the same way that it does for women. Mm-hmm. And so, like, again, generalizing, but like, feel like women have to do much more of that emotional labor in order to move forward, mm-hmm. to feel safe. And so that translates really well into art, and that, like, mm-hmm. of course they're paying attention to everything. Yeah. And of course they're going to notice things that the people in power who move through the world where the world works for them mm-hmm. don't notice in the same way. Yeah. So I just love that little. I didn't know Nora Roberts wrote. I didn't a, either. As a man or um, with a, I'm sorry, initialed pseudonym. Yeah. I knew about the Brontes because I I do love me some Jane Eyre, um, and Jane Austen is my girl. So mm-hmm. I was surprised that she didn't even in her later novels give. Yeah. Well, maybe not all of them were a lady. Maybe once she got some acclaim because she was popular in her own lifetime. Okay. But her first ones were a lady. A which a lady, which also has some connotation of who's writing. Yes, that's like a, there's not a, class a thing. wanton ignoramus of the lower class, but a no. lady is writing you a story, so therefore it's acceptable. Yes, mm. super important. Um, yeah, okay, I got some good stuff about women in pants in France. Women pants in pants France. in France. Pants of France. So it was kind of uh, seen as a natural. Revolution. French Revolution. Right? Quite the revolution. There's yes. this whole feeling of like a new dawn of equality. You couldn't have the revolution without the women. There's a whole faction of just equality of the sexes in this new world. We are we are equal parts in this revolution. So we should be able to be equal parts in the country we form. Part of that is um, 
women want the same spaces. Women want the same uh, qualities that men get just for free, right? However, in November of 1800, there's an issue in Paris prohibiting women from the wearing of men's clothes in public. There's health-related reasons. <laughs> what does that it's even mean? It's a danger to themselves and others. Uh, I mean... Any woman that wishes to dress as a man must present herself to the prefecture for authorization. So you had to get a pants permit. You had to get a pants permit. Yes. Because they're dangerous. Yes. And a medical necessity would require such a... Uh, uh, See, I don't mean to be this guy, but like skirts seem dangerous in the 1800s. What with Mm. the like horses and wagon wheels Mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, Pants seem like the safer call in that moment. Yeah, it's bananas. So I think that is what was allowed too. It's like, oh, Madame needs to uh, operate her own horses on her carriage and thus pants would help her do so. So therefore, permit granted, milady. Oh my god. But you just like, you so, want it to be a little bit easier to walk around? Yes. No. So I think it's one of these laws that's uh, there and enforced as needed or enforced when wanted. It's like we're making police. a point by passing it, but. Because I don't know of many uh, issues that she had wearing these clothes. Do we think she place. got a pants permit? I don't think she got a pants permit. I think she could have afforded one, or maybe she had a. Uh, maybe they weren't enforcing it in the places she was going. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, if it's a place where the feminine must be protected, I have a feeling it was maybe enforced more there. Whereas she's going into male spaces, so she's just wearing the uniform. Yeah. Um, Female revolutionaries cited as wanting to the right to wear pants, and the it just didn't end up going over very well. Um... Yeah, the yeah, public spaces, no pants is basically what it says. And uh, <laughs> by loosening the law in 1909, women holding by hand bicycles or the reins of a horse were granted special permission to go out in public. So for a century, century, yeah, a hundred years, they're not allowed to no wear problems. pants in public. You also think in like 1800s, like it's the most you've ever seen. I I think it's the most you've ever seen men and women dress differently. Do you know what I mean? There is such a clear discrepancy of, like, who is who. Yeah. Yeah. Which totally makes sense, because that's the same time where, like, the domestic Mm -hmm. space is being, like, shut off from the public sphere, and you're Mm -hmm. getting men public, women private. That kind of, like, Mm -hmm. dichotomy shows up at that time. There's also um, records saying that it was also a monetary help to some women that they're out they're starting to go out and work more too and if they're wearing the same clothes they're actually more financially able to afford them women's clothes are more More expensive expensive. and uh less practical on the job so but yeah there's just some fuddy-duddies out there that didn't care for it so i don't have record of her actually uh being made to get a permit or such but there is a Parisian law on record at the time of her walking around in pants saying she could not do so without some special permission. So she's doing a little pants civil disobedience. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. She's not into it. She doesn't care. There's, uh, and I think part of her doing it is in line with this idea of French revolution coming full circle. Like it's Mm. the next step in the revolution. Yeah. And, Victor Hugo is citing 
uh, talking about her. In this age devoted to completing the revolution and to beginning the human revolution, equality between the sexes being part of equality between men, a great woman is ne- was needed. Woman had to prove that she could have all our manly qualities without losing her angelic ones, that she could be strong without ceasing to be gentle. George Sand is that proof. She bequeaths to us the right of woman which draws its proof from woman's genius. Thus, the revolution is fulfilled. So flawed logic. Right. Because male is neutral, once again. That's yep. the other theme of this podcast. Male is neutral. False. Um, but at the same time, she is seen as like, what? if the spectrum is the, the sexes are divided, you have to swing all the way to one side and then come all the way back to actually be progressive, I right. find. And we're sort of edging their way that way now where it's just I as a 21st century woman I don't care what you wear you can wear the most feminine thing you can wear the most masculine thing I don't think it defines what kind of woman you are I think that's where we should go I think you as a man should wear nail polish and a bow in your hair if you want and that's not going to that you're Michael and it doesn't matter and that's hopefully where we're headed. And I think this is the very early age of that, of just like, mm-hmm. she was the female swinging all the way to the male. And I'm sure there were men that were swinging all the way to the female side. And like, eventually we will be able to just wear nice day to day, whatever you want. Just wear whatever you want and be you. Yeah. Yeah. Still working on that though. Still working. Yeah. But just for the record, Michael, that mm-hmm. law about women not being able to wear pants in public places was repealed in 2013. <laughs> Go, France. Oh, my God. I know, buddy. Do you want a drink? I mean, yes, but maybe when we're done. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, my God. 2013. So there you go, George Sand. Thank you so much, Gabe. You're welcome. Yay, French ladies. Yay, French ladies. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.